0: help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Colin Andrews today. Just recorded a interview with Eric Ristabin from Russell Investments. Eric is the Chief Investment Strategist at Russell Investments, and he gave us an outlook on Well, the economy, the markets, inflation, interest rates, debt levels, all kinds of questions that all investors seem to want to know the answers to, which I don't blame them for. So please enjoy the show. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. I was going to actually ask you to explain what Diamond
2: Hands was, but you did that. so. (laughs) And the fact that I actually don't know, and I'm very happy to admit I don't know, probably should tell the audience what I think of Reddit as a source of investment ideas. It's usually people trying to convince you to buy something that they already own, which is something you should always be a little bit leery of. I like to talk about the Canadian mandate. I think you probably heard me tell the story when I was a kid. I think it was the same in Canada, because I've always lived near the Canadian border in my life. You'd have at 6.30 on Sunday evening, it would be Marlon Perkins, The Wild Kingdom, and it'd be followed by The Wonderful World of Disney at 7. And we all saw those pictures of the African plain with the herd of zebras on the African plain. And they always eventually they went to the shot of a single zebra on their own. And we quickly realized nothing ever good happens to that zebra. They're not elected zebra queen or anything else. They're usually horrible things happen to them. That idea of staying with a herd and when you had your picture of the brain out there, that is an incredibly powerful thing for us as human beings. It is, however, as a general rule as it relates to investing, it is a wealth-destroying urge because we want to sell when the herd is selling and that's when the market's falling dramatically. So I think that people are often looking for reasons to invest my view is you should always be invested and you should have a longer term view of kind of things and kind of what you invest in can change modestly over time. But as a general rule, I completely agree with your view that in the end, it's the disciplined investor that actually generally does the best. So hopefully what we talk about today, Colin, will help people get a sense of comfort and allow them to be disciplined because I've noticed in my lifetime that media companies generally don't lead with Everything's great in the world. Don't worry about anything. They tend to lead with the stories that scare people because if you scare people, they'll watch a broadcast. You know, I I think keeping that in mind. Clearly, in the last two years, we've had a lot of things to be afraid of, like legitimately afraid of. The virus impact, as you mentioned, that was a stunning, stunning fall in economic activity and therefore stock prices. In fact, it is in our mind, it will almost undoubtedly go down as the shortest recession. In certainly U.S. market history, it's going to end up being about a two-and-a-half to three-month recession, but it was huge in terms of its impact. And we're kind of all a little bit shell-shocked coming out of that is we're all kind of peeking out of the foxhole to see if things are safe, and there's a constant kind of refrain of new things to be afraid of. So far this year, it's been a great year. The T.S.X. is up 23 in change, 23% and change on a year-to-date basis. Oil has been very, very good to people in, in the last year. And oil has been really, really strong because economic activity globally has been spectacularly strong. The US market, the US economy is we expect it to grow about six percent this year. If you think about what we think the long-term average growth rate for the US is likely to be over the next 20 years, that number's around 1.7%. So six percent growth is three times bigger than what we think is going to be the average growth rate of the United States. Similar numbers Canada, US. If you look at kind of a broad Europe. If you look broadly in the world, that is pretty much what you're seeing in the pattern, particularly in the developed world. Really, really strong economic activity. When we look at current data around how business people are feeling about their business, all those surveys are strong. They're not as strong in the last couple of months as they were in the summer, in the beginning of the summer, but they're still really strong to put in Canada perspective. That's what's leading to this almost insatiable demand. For raw materials and oil. The fact that kind of the global economy went from zero miles per hour to 100 miles per hour in a very short period of time, that's created some difficulties, frankly, in the supply chain and other places for the economy. So when we start thinking about what's happened so far this year, it has been a spectacular year of economic growth. It has been a very, very strong year of equity returns, even after what we saw in the May to December period last year, which was all ridiculously strong. give you a sense of it, in the year-on-year year, between February of 2020 and, I guess, March of 2020 and February of 2021, the small cap index in the U.S., the Russell 2000, doubled. Wow. Over 100% return. So, I mean, you've seen a really big response. And so people are saying, well, our stock's too expensive now. Well, yeah, they're expensive. But the thing that's also happened along with that really good economic activity and those really good stock returns is that corporate earnings have been spectacular over the last, certainly almost a year now, probably a year when you look at the earnings growth that we've seen in Canada, the US, Europe, we're talking about just absolutely monster numbers. And so if you think about kind of in the long run, in the long run, what drives equity valuations, like what a company's stock is worth, it's what is their ability to maintain earnings now and into the future. So the greater probability they're able to maintain high levels of earnings in the future, the more valuable their stock is. This is not rocket science. And in the long run, that's what drives companies' valuations. In the short run, lots of things like short squeezes on AMC can drive stocks. You have to ask yourself if you're buying AMC. You have to ask yourself: Am I really? Is this really a smart thing to do to buy a movie theater chain in a world where digital streaming is becoming the norm?
1: Isn't that kind of like buying Maybe. shares of Blockbuster? Well, just before Blockbuster went away.
2: Yeah, I like going to the movie theater, so I hope not. I did like going to Blockbuster, so I was fine with that. But I do kind of like going to the movie, and getting the popcorn, the experience of seeing it with other people is a good thing. But let me you know, ask you this, Eric, though. Too.
1: Can I just take it back to just for our, our listeners and our people that are attending today? The questions we get pretty regularly, and you mentioned it in a roundabout way just a few minutes ago, are based around inflation. Like inflation numbers are running really high, much higher than historical norms. And some are calling it transitory inflation, some are calling it hyperinflation. What's your take? What's Russell's take on where inflation is and where it's going?
2: I know there are people who are out there saying maybe it's hyperinflation. I can tell you right now, categorically, it's not hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is paying 2 billion Deutschmarks in the late 20s for a loaf of bread. That's hyperinflation. But inflation has been running hotter than the Federal Reserve would like. And as an American, I am intensely aware that I talk about my country a lot, even when I talk to Canadians, when I talk to Europeans, when I talk to people in Japan and Australia. I talk about the U.S. a lot. And I was really happy you showed those charts earlier. There's lots of reasons for it. We're half the world's market capitalization in the equity market. Of that debt market, we are an uncomfortably large portion of the debt market, even at the national level, we're probably closing in on $30 trillion of that that $123 trillion, I think you said it was, in yeah. the global debt market in most recent numbers. But our national debt's about a quarter of it. We think about it. And the other thing is, is that because the US dollar is the fiat currency of the world, and what that means basically is every central bank in the world, the Bank of Canada, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, every central bank in the world holds some of their reserves in US dollars because oil clears in dollars primarily, lots of markets clear in dollars. That fiat currency is the reserve currency. So that is both a very much a privilege it's an advantage for the us but it's also it's also got responsibility with it and one of the things is we're often responsible for exporting inflation <laughs> if the u.s experiences inflation guess what folks we're going to export it to everybody else
1: thanks a lot for that by the way
2: yeah, you're welcome <laughs> we tend to be patient zero a lot <laughs> which is probably not the greatest thing in the world i've apologized for a lot of that past. I apologize for the global financial crisis. I've apologized for other things. So when we have an inflation issue in the United States, and currently you're right, absolutely, inflation is running uncomfortably hot in the U.S. We think most of it's transitory, and we think the Federal Reserve is viewing it most as transitory. Uh, Now, I'll tell you right now, we were wrong about how quickly it would be proved to be transitory. We thought it would take as long as it's going to take to get those inflationary forces out of the market. But when you look at what's causing that inflation or has been causing the inflation, most of it was in parts of the economy that really were going zero miles an hour a year ago. Lodging, (laughs) airline, car purchasing, car rentals, used car markets. I mean, all of those things were on the balls of their feet last year, and because the economy opened up, because consumers around the globe, largely thanks to what our governments did to keep us in good financial nick as consumers, all those benefit programs that were put out. As soon as we felt it was safe to go out and buy stuff, we were probably going to go out and buy stuff, and that's what we did. And we had the money to do it. And so, really, this inflation has been—it's a demand shock. It's the very little demand a year ago and just ridiculously high demand now. And everybody kind of in the system has to adjust. So we think eventually those adjustments are made. There's lots of reasons for it. Historically, that's been the pattern. Is if there is demand, somebody will find a way to meet that demand. And so you'll find the supply eventually rises up to the level of demand and inflation begins to, to alleviate itself. The one kind of wrinkle in that is if we are paid more if wages are rising at a higher rate, that actually can lead to persistent inflation. So when we have seen persistent inflation in periods in the US and pretty much every country, it's because wages rise to meet those new price levels. And then price levels go up again. And so then companies have to pay people more. And then it's this kind of vicious circle. Because we can afford to buy more, we get paid more. And then they raise prices because we're paid more. And then one thing to get. and So when the Federal Reserve gets worried about inflation is when those wages are moving up. And that's been something that's been a watch point in the United States, because the wage tracker that our Atlanta Fed does, our Federal Reserve is actually an amalgamation of lots of regional banks. And each of them have their own specialty. Atlanta, the thing that everybody looks for them to do is this wage tracker. And their wage tracker says the average American worker wage growth is running at about 3.9 percent a year. meaning that's how much more they're being paid. And when it gets historically to four, that's when the Fed becomes concerned because that's when this wage price spiral can kind of start to really take hold. And so what they typically do is when they get close to four, they become a little more reactive.
1: How do they become reactive? What measures do they put into place?
2: Right now, money is free and they're making more money freely available at kind of historical levels. And they're doing it two ways. One, interest rates are at zero. But the second thing is they're purchasing assets in the open market. What purchasing assets does, this gets a little confusing for investors because interest rates and prices are inversely related in the bond space. So if you see a drop in interest rates, you see that bond prices go up. And if you see a rise in interest rates, bond prices go down, which seems a little less intuitive. So because they are buying so many bonds, what they're doing is they're creating their own demand for bonds, and that keeps interest rates low because they're out there buying the bonds and they're driving the price up and the interest rates down. That's what quantitative easing is. If People have heard that term. That's what it does. That's what it's meant to do. The first thing they typically do, and this is, they've always done quantitative easing twice in the U.S. <laughs> so this is our second go around.
1: And the first one was the global financial crisis, right?
2: Exactly. So what the first thing they do when they get worried about inflation and the economy potentially overheating, they start buying fewer and fewer bonds. The natural expectation is that that'll allow rates to rise. And I think they announced in September that they were going to start this taper. But the taper is, it just means we're going to taper off our buying of bonds over time. We're going to go from here to here, and then eventually we're not going to buy any bonds at all. And they announced that they're gonna start the taper. And that was probably really in a reaction to that wage number. They wanna to begin to prep the market. If you think about it, it is free money is like a sugar high for the market. it can be very disruptive. It helps when you're in crisis, it becomes disruptive when you're not. So they're beginning to kind of take the free money out of the system slowly. So do that taper over time. And then once they're done with that, Colin, the next step is they're actually gonna raise the interest rates, the price of money. And what that does is when you raise the cost of capital, that has a tendency to slow down economic activity, to keep it from overheating, to keep it from creating that wage pressure that begets inflation.
1: Let me ask you this. Let me take it back to our individual investor level. Because in Canada, the overnight lending rate between the Bank of Canada and the big banks is 0.25%. And you called interest rate zero. I mean, 0.25 is pretty close to zero. There's some debate or discussion of whether or not the Bank of Canada will raise rates to 0.5%. And it's sort of worrisome to some investors. Some people use terms like interest rates will go up 100% or interest rates are going to double, which of course, mathematically, if you go from 0.25 to 0.5, they do. But what's your take on where interest rates go? Maybe not in Canada, maybe in Canada, if you have that number, but just globally, like you mentioned, rates are going to go up. What do you mean by that? Is it a quarter of a percent every quarter? As you mentioned
2: earlier, they already went up in the third quarter, kind of as a result of probably that that announcement they were going to taper. And by the way, you've noticed this too, over the last Uh, It's more than the last decade, but over the last decade, the fit between Canadian interest rates and U.S. interest rates are unbelievably tight. So we tend to mirror each other in the movement of interest rates pretty closely. There are lots of reasons. you're our largest trading partner, we're your largest trading partner. There's a reason for that. So when I talk about rates going up, we think, first of all, the overnight rate is academically interesting, but in your real life, makes no difference at all. Not much at all. How many of your clients are borrowing money
1: overnight? (laughs) Well, none. Hopefully.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's some poor planning on this part. (laughs) So i probably not. So we tend to care about interest rates on a 10-year loan or a 5-year loan, a little longer loans, or maybe a 30-year loan with mortgages. So those rates are the ones that matter. And the Fed doesn't get to control those. The market gets to control those. All they control is that overnight rate between what banks basically charge each other and what they charge the banks to lend money. And so we think those rates right now, they're around 1.5% in the United States. And we think they may move up over the course of the entire market cycle this time to like two and a quarter to two and a half. And nobody ups and down, there's always volatility, but our expectation is that in 12 months, maybe they get up to like 1.8% in the US. And I think you kind of think about equivalency for, for Canadians, it won't be exactly the same number, but they'll be in the same relative area. We think that's the most likely path.
1: You're talking about the US 10-year treasury, which is right around 1.52 or something like that today, there was some worries in the markets a few months ago or a month ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but the U.S. 10-year went from 1.15 to 1.6 and then pulled back and now it's at 1.5. So, But you're saying that that's probably going to go to 1.8 over the next 12 months, something like that.
2: Something like that. So that early move in the year was really the market taking no inflation expectations at all at the end of last year and said, you know what, inflation's probably not going to be zero. (laughs) And so they readjusted their inflation expectations. This latest rise has had nothing really to do with inflation expectations. It's actually more around what they think the Fed's going to do. And so they're going to go up. That'll put a little bit of negative pressure on bond prices But if they go up 28 basis points over a year, you're still going to get positive bond returns. I can tell you, I did the math. Okay, (laughs) yeah. The good news about bonds is that you're absolutely completely wrong about our expectation that the economy will be strong next year, both in Canada and the U.S. If we're wrong about that, you're going to be really happy you own bonds. Because they are the things that offset your equity equity risk in terms of your total portfolio. We're thinking that Canada is probably going to grow about 4% next year. The U.S. around 6% next year. So, still well above average in terms of what the long term trends are, but not quite what we're doing this year, but still strong growth. I think it's important to understand the reason the Federal Reserve is taking some of that free money out of the system is because business is really good. Business is so good that we have to hire people, and I got to compete with you to hire somebody in my shop. And because labor has been a little tighter than we would have expected, that means I got to pay them more <laughs> than you are to get them to come. And then for you to keep them, you're going to have to pay them more to stay. And then you're probably going to have to pay everybody that has that job that works for you that amount of money. And that's that wage pressure.
1: Hopefully none of the members of our staff are listening to that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think money's ever a (laughs) good reason to change a job. There better be other reasons. Everyone I know that's ever done that didn't like how it worked out. So the reality is, is that the Fed is doing this so that growth doesn't become overheated. always important to keep in mind, but it's this weird relationship in financial markets where good news can be bad news and bad news can be good news. And it sometimes is really hard for individuals who don't live and breathe this like you and I do to kind of follow the thread. But in general terms, and the other thing that's a huge advantage for like the stock market, if you're thinking about over the next five years or so, is we just started a new economic cycle. I am very confident that we are farther away from the next recession today than we were in December of 2019, because we just started a new economic cycle. The system just reset. And so we have spare capacity in our labor markets relative to where we were then, spare capacity in a lot of areas. That means the next recession seems to be pretty far away. And to give a sense of kind of from investor's perspective, what that means is, a 20% drop in equities is fairly unlikely in the next certainly two or three years. It can happen, but it would be very unlikely if you look at kind of historically. I always tell people that you should always be braced for a 10% drop in equities because they do it a lot.
1: Doesn't it happen almost every calendar year, a five to 10% drop in equities at some point during the year?
2: Well, five to 10, yes. 10%, six out of 10. So more often than not. So The thing that's going to take you from 10 to 20, and this isn't literally true, but it's the way I think of the world. To go from 10 to 20, you need a recession. You may hit 20, but it ain't going to hold if you don't have a recession. It just won't.
1: Never has. I've got a couple of questions from the audience, actually. I'm trying to monitor them as we're speaking. But one came in earlier, and it was, I'm just going to read it. Given the current state of the energy industry in Canada going forward, how will that affect the overall economy?
2: There's two ways I can interpret that. I mean, this is good for oil companies right now, globally, price is high, much higher than it has been. So profits are good. They've gotten a little more disciplined about how they bring new capacity online and their level of investment. So generally, oil companies are much better nicked than they were a few years ago. So that's a good thing. If they're alluding to kind of ESG issues, environmental, social, and governance issues that are very much front and center for a lot of investors. I think there's a lot of people that are thinking, well, ESG dooms integrated oil companies. And, well, first of all, integrated oil companies globally are the largest investors in alternative fuels of any companies in the world because they're not idiots. They know the trend is coming and they're beginning to try to diversify their business model. The second thing is, from a policy standpoint, if you're really dedicated as Europe is dedicated to ESG... One of the best ways to catalyze that movement in the economy is to make energy expensive. So you have a financial incentive to do the change. So these people who are talking about the cataclysm, the the apocalypse, the Armageddon that's going to hit integrated oil companies and oil companies in general, maybe in 30 years, yeah, over the next 10 years, there's a good chance business is going to be pretty good.
1: Considering that people are still burning coal. (laughs) Isn't that a whole other part to that argument? But thank you for answering that. I have another question from the audience, and it is, if you look at strong government action in the face of the pandemic, it seems the U.S. government in particular will not allow the market to go down. And in Canada, the housing market seems like it's gotten too big to fail. Do these examples mean we should do anything differently as investors? Should we consider stocks less risky?
2: The rumors of the death of the Canadian real estate market have been greatly exaggerated for a while. Sherry Shatria, who I know you know, wrote a neat article. He wrote actually two versions of the article, one for Canada on the property. So I would encourage you, if you haven't, maybe kind of highlight that for your clients they so you have a deeper read for somebody who's looked at it more seriously than I have. And then he did it from a U.S. perspective. This is drumbeat because real estate in the U.S. has been really, really strong. And basically, his comment in the U.S. one was, if you think U.S. house prices are unsustainable, you should look at my friends in Canada and, good Lord, look at the Australians.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> they're off the chart. <laughs> Housing prices in Sydney are nuts, and they have been nuts for 20 years. So anytime something is high, it contains risk. So if you're thinking about your total portfolio, I'm not saying it's cataclysmic for homes, I'm just saying that they're not cheap. Equities aren't cheap either, so you gotta kind of do your own math as, as which one you think is more expensive. I think that the reality is that real estate conceptually fits between equities and bonds in a portfolio, kind of from its return potential. I think if you think of it that way, kind of thinking about your total portfolio, this is where your team really does all the work. It's helping people understand their own situations, their total wealth portfolio, and help them kind of merge the two. The problem often with housing is you got to live in it, so you can't live off of it you got to find financial
1: assets. Let me ask you a follow-up to that. And it's something I was thinking about. We also get a question all the time about how the stock market's at an all-time high. Is this a good time to invest? And isn't it a bad time to put money into the market when it's at an all-time high? And quite often we talk about things like, yeah, but so is the milk production and is also at an all-time high in the world. But I don't know where that goes from there. But how do you approach that question? of where the market's at and talking about peak growth and are we there? How would you approach that question?
2: Go back to the, one of the charts that you showed. You hit the answer to that question right on the head and you, your charts to start. You showed the- I just chart. lobbed
1: you a softball, so that's what happened. Yeah, there. yeah.
2: <laughs> so you showed the chart, that, that, that I can't remember if it was the TSX or the S&P 500, but it was distinctly sloped up and to the right. If you really look at that chart, what you find is the market establishes new market highs on an extraordinarily regular basis. And at some point in the future, so far in the past, at some point in the future, it is going to establish an even higher high. That's what they do. Is your economy expands, you're capitalizing more and more economic activity, which means shares, stock prices go up as the economy expands. I mean, that's the relationship. So the fact that you meet new highs particularly after you recently had a recession, is not particularly troubling for folks like me. It's whether or not the economic activity, underlying economic activity support those stock prices is there, and whether those companies are able to translate that activity into earnings. And remember I said early on, earnings in the long run, the capacity of a firm to create and maintain earnings into the future is what drives a stock price. If the economy is expected to grow, and they have shown the ability to translate economic growth into better earnings over time. And that's why over 20-year periods, stocks usually beat all comers. And when I say usually, I mean, almost always. There's only a few notable exceptions in terms of the data. And those are on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis, on a 20-year rolling basis. And that was in the global financial crisis.
1: Let's talk about different factors of return in stock price. Another question we often get is value stocks versus growth stocks and how growth stocks led the way for quite a while. We hit this global pandemic and economic shutdown and value stocks led the charge out of that. Where do you think we are in that cyclical relationship of value to growth?
2: So we still prefer on the margin value over growth right now. Value stocks tend to be more cyclical. We say cyclical. what that means is their earnings tend to be more influenced by the economic cycle and the growth rate of the economy. So when the economy starts to improve dramatically, as you saw, it goes into recovery. Value companies, usually their earnings grow much faster than growth companies. Think about kind of particularly the tech that we had. The last thing you do is cut down your Facebook usage. Their earnings are not hugely influenced by the cycle, those kind of big growth companies that's a positive and a negative but in that context it's positive where an oil company is a value company that is a highly cyclical stock when the economy starts expanding your oil goes up and the profits go up and that's been the case this last year value stocks have been out earning in terms of their growth rate growth stocks basically since we've had this recovery that's a normal relationship we think the opening trade in the US is largely not completely over but it's getting in the later stages Our economy has filled in that hole of damage in 2020. Other economies, yourselves included, haven't. You still are in that early recovery phase, and that usually is good for cyclical stocks, which are more or less value stocks. They're highly correlated between the two. Not all value stocks are cyclical, but a lot of them are.
1: Let me ask you another question I get all the time is, in Canada, we've been trained, well-trained over the years that you should invest in dividend-paying stocks because that's the way to go. Get paid to wait is something that we hear all the time. And what is your take on, should you focus on a dividend strategy or just collect dividends as a natural byproduct of being invested?
2: There's lots of questions around that. It really depends on where you are in the life cycle of your investment and your sense of comfort. I know a lot of investors, I'm sure your clients, some of your clients are among them, They don't like to sell things to fund their own kind of expenses in retirement. So they want the income that naturally comes off their investment to fund their spending. For those people, high dividend yielding stocks are more attractive. And there are more old people in Canada now than have been in the past. There are more old people in the United States than have been in the past. We're an aging demographic. That preference has had a tendency to probably reward high dividend paying stocks. The other element, though, that's really important to understand for people who have looked historically at what high dividends have done, high dividend stocks, they've done really, really well. But they're bond proxy, meaning what you get paid looks a lot like interest. And so they tend to be influenced by where interest rates are going. And in a 30-year world where interest rates did nothing but go down in the U.S. and Canada, that's been the path for both of us. Those stocks get that tailwind. We're now in a world where interest rates aren't going to keep going down. You cannot go lower than zero. I mean, you can, but that's not healthy and it's not good for anybody in the long run. So that tailwind for dividend stocks, I just be aware of it. And if you think of it as a bond replacement, which I unfortunately I think a lot of investors do, you got to remember, they're stocks.
1: They are not bonds. <laughs> yeah.
2: They are not bonds. And if you're only going to buy those stocks, you tend not to own a large portion of the market than a lot of those growth companies. Because growth companies, as a general rule, don't pay high dividends because they'd rather reinvest the money in their own businesses than give it back to you because you're going to earn more if they do. I think it's more of a financial planning issue for me and a comfort level with how do you want to fund your spending in retirement? In retirement, you should always own high-dividend yielding stocks, but my opinion, probably not more than the composition of the market.
1: I subscribe to that as well. Own the market. Don't try to be smarter than the market because maybe you are, but I know I'm not. Anyways, let's talk about, we've just got 10 minutes left here, supply chain issues. You touched on supply chain issues, and it's something that's relevant and real. Can you just expand on that a little bit?
2: There's tons of issues. There's a huge semiconductor chip shortage right now. <laughs> But again, the companies in that business are figuring out how to get more capacity online and to meet that demand because it's in their best financial interest. If we can sell more, let's do what we can to sell more. There's a lag. You can't open up on factory tomorrow, or you, there's a little bit of a lag, but they're beginning to do those things. The other thing is there have been shipping challenges. I took a picture not too far from where I am this morning. I took a picture of a line of container vessels going into the port of LA one of those ships evidently dropped the anchor on the pipeline for the offshore oil rigs here in california so they're a little bit farther offshore than they were two months ago when i was last here but that line extended in fact the last tanker in that line right now is fully 25 miles away from the port of la and there's just a line of them all to the port of la so it's a lot of different pieces but eventually what happens is it's kind of related to that peak growth thing. We've rolled over in terms of peak growth. This year, the U.S. is going to grow it over the next 12 months. This year, 6%. We're going to slow down next year. When you come out of recession, you're, that's when your fastest growth rates are. So being past peak growth is not like that shouldn't concern people all that much. The question is, is, the number still positive, and is it still over what the average is? And we think it's going to be solidly that. What happens is that once you pass peak growth, the demand function comes down a little bit supply is naturally coming up to meet the demand and eventually you find equilibrium. You're beginning to see some signs in terms of manufacturing in China and some of the shipping things that are happening, that that's beginning to happen, but it's taken a little while. I think that's just a function of just the massive demand globally is people kind of start living their lives again.
1: Interesting. Okay, two last questions and then we'll get you off the hot seat here. One came in, what about changes to taxation? There's always talk about capital gains, inclusion rates, and things like that? Or do you see any major changes to taxation where you are, where we are?
2: Major, depends on who your categorization of major is. They're going to go up. I mean, yes, I think they are going to go up. Capital gains, there's no evidence in the United States or any other country that the capital gains tax has any effect on stock markets. <laughs> the capital gain results, it relates to anything you could own. Just people think of about a stock. If you have a home and you sell it for a profit, same capital gains tax. If you own a bond and you sell it for a profit, you sell the same. It is a non-discriminatory, equal opportunity tax, so it doesn't hurt equities more than it hurts anything else. It just lowers your return, which ain't great for you as an investor, but you only get to vote to control that by electing your representative. In the U.S., the one tax that does matter is obviously the corporate earnings tax, and that is likely to go up. I don't think it's guaranteed to go up. It's currently at 21. It's probably going to go to 25 in our minds at the highest. That will be a drag on earnings, but not an enormous drag relative certainly last quarter earnings in the S&P 500 grew by 90%. I think if tax rates go up 4%. It's probably about a four to 5% drag on earnings growth. Yeah, it's not great, but it's not probably going to fundamentally change the picture for investors. But a lot of debt in the world, so taxes are probably going to go up.
1: Well, you just led into my last and final question. Global debt levels. We get this one a lot. Should we be concerned about where global debt levels are and what can be done about it?
2: I think concern is probably a good thing. I wouldn't keep me up at night. Debt is an interesting thing because debt and solvencies are two different things. So like when you think about home prices in Canada, the headline is on home prices and its relationship generally to your income. But what it doesn't factor in is the cost of the debt. You're paying really low interest rates. So when you look at kind of your daily life, how much of your overall budget that you are spending to own your house when interest rates are low is pretty low. And that's what's kind of fueled this ability for housing prices to move up. Same for government. Yeah, we have a load of debt, but a lot of it is like 2% or lower interest rates. I'm concerned about it. So I'm not like saying that's a great thing and no don't worry about it at all, but debt is this weird thing. It's a chronic issue for most economies, but there's a point at which it becomes critical and potentially grave. Japan has a debt to GDP ratio of 250%. Sounds high. <laughs> it sounds high, and their 10-year interest rate on their sovereign bonds, as you know, they're laminated at less than 50 basis points, less than half a percent. And when I say less than 50 basis points, they're usually like 10 to 20. So lend the Japanese government money for 10 years. In Europe, those numbers are negative. It's an interesting thing. It hasn't affected Japan in any real way. They owe most of that money to themselves, the vast majority, as do we in the US and as do you as Canadians. It's kind of chronic. It's a chronic issue because then the more of your budget that's used to service debt, the less productivity gains. of the less growth you'll experience so think of as high debt levels the one thing that's inextricably linked to high debt levels are probably incrementally lower economic growth rates not necessarily apocalypse but lower than you could have been there's a point at which your lenders decide yeah we're done (laughs) and now it's a critical issue we don't think you're Let good. me touch
1: on that. Just a quick follow-up. I hate to bring it up, but Evergrande is an issue, a debt issue. And I think there's like hundred and seventy lenders that are at stake here. Can you just touch on the significance of that?
2: In our industry, most of us have been talking over the good portion of the last decade around the fact that there's a troubling level of debt in China that because of the way their economy is run, they have been able to largely sweep those issues under the rug, although kind of everybody knows they're there. The rug has a huge lump in it. (laughs) You can see the lump, but you can't see exactly what's underneath it. But the reality is, is that I think this is one of the instances that we're gonna see over time of that kind of everybody knew it was an issue, the issue actually coming to light. We don't think it's a layman event, like I don't think the market thinks it's a layman-like event. The Chinese government certainly has enough money to paper over it and to shove it back under the rug if it wants to. I think it wants some pain experience because they want people to stop taking that much leverage. The real concern we have around Evergrande is if it somehow starts a wave of Chinese being less willing to buy property, if they become less interested in home buying and the home buying business slows down significantly, home building for every country, but for China in particular, is a hugely important growth engine for your economy. So if you do see kind of this lack of confidence in housing, then really dramatically affecting the propensity of Chinese to buy homes, and that then leads to a slowdown in home building, that'll slow their economy more than we would like to see, and I'm sure more than the Chinese government would like to see. That's the number one risk that we see right now. There was an article I saw this morning that bit of a Chicken Little article saying, oh my God, the sky is falling in because house prices fell 0.08% last month. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, 0.08, okay.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure that's the point of which I'd be terrified. <laughs> if it gets worse, it'll be a problem. Not a cataclysmic problem, likely, but it's going to lower the growth rate in China and their large, second largest economy in the world. That's going to affect us.
1: Well, listen, I think that we should maybe wrap up your talk there. That was really interesting. I hope you see the screen. I tried to find the Diamond Hands likeliness of Eric Ristabin online. And... Yeah,
2: very much a Trumponian kind of visual there.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, you said it. I didn't. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was a very sensitive to that. <laughs> An that aren't
0: American.
1: <laughs> well, in all sincerity, Eric, thank you for taking the time to spend this hour with us. It was very valuable and answering questions that people ask all the time because they're important and it's always great to have it come from somebody like yourself. So I appreciate that.
2: Happy to do it, Colin.
1: And I just want to let everybody know a couple of items here. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, we do have a weekly podcast. This episode will be posted next week on that podcast It's called CM Group Free Lunch. And thank you so much for everybody joining us today. And we look forward to our next webinar. Eric, you'll be off the hook for that one. But we're going to come back to you for commentary quite regularly, I'm sure. I hope you're open to it. I am. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the free lunch podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, Eric Ristabin with Russell Investments, chief investment strategist, obviously a very knowledgeable person when it comes to investing. And we really thank Eric for doing this for us today. We'll catch you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets Work. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates, or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking, or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2021.